If you would please open your Bibles to first, well, second Samuel chapter five. Second Samuel chapter five. And I want to begin with a question. Something I've been talking with my kids about, but something that we all need to ask. Two questions, really, related. Here's the first one How do you live your life when nobody's watching? When nobody's watching, how do you live your life? But what about when everybody's watching? How do you live your life then? You see, when nobody's watching, we are tempted to live our lives in ways that are just pleasing to us. But when everybody's watching, we are tempted to live our lives in ways that are pleasing to those who are watching. But what if we had a greater awareness that God, is always watching. There's never a moment when His eyes are not on us. And even when all eyes are on us, there is a set of eyes that matter more than all of them. The eyes of God. For the Reformers, They thought that the big idea of the Christian life could be summarized in a simple Latin phrase. Corum Deo. Corum Deo. Corum means in the presence of, or literally before the face of. Deo God. All of life as Christians should be lived before the face of God. If we are in Christ, we begin by knowing that God's face is toward us in love and in grace. But because of that, love and grace, we ought to desire to live for God's glory. First and foremost, we should seek to be pleasing in His sight. Not simply pleasing ourselves or pleasing those who are watching us. David's life was lived corum Deo, before the face of God. He didn't live his life perfectly. We will see that. In our text today, we will see that in the weeks ahead. But we should not miss that David is in our Bibles in part, primarily to point to Christ, but in part to help us learn what it means to live rightly before God. Last week we saw David anointed as king over all of Israel. In our passage this morning, David does two really groundbreaking things in the history of Israel. First of all, he takes Jerusalem and establishes the capital there for the nation. Secondly, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. 
The Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence among His covenant people. But it also represents God's reign. Remember what we learned from the book of Exodus? The Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of the throne of God. And so from this moment forward, there will be two thrones on Mount Zion. David's throne and God's throne. And this is so important for the people of God and especially for David and all that followed him to learn this is the way it is supposed to work. God's anointed king is subject to God as king. David's throne is meant to be situated under the shadow of God's throne. And when God is present, as king among his people, his people should live their lives aware of his presence. Coram Deo, before the face of God. Our passage this morning is divided into two parts. Chapter 5, verses 6 and following. God establishes David's throne at Jerusalem. In chapter 6, David brings the ark, the footstool of God's throne, to Jerusalem. We'll begin by looking at chapter 5, and we're going to learn four lessons about how to live our lives before God from chapter 5, and then four more lessons about how to live our lives before God in chapter 6. So that's right, I have eight points this morning. We best get started. Let's begin with chapter 5. God establishing David's throne at Jerusalem. We'll read verses 6 to 10 to begin. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? David has just been anointed over all of Israel. And we pick up in verse 6 and read, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, verse 10, that last verse, the Lord was with David. That's why David's throne was established at Jerusalem. The Lord was with David. God was present with him. And so David, as we'll see, lives his life in God's presence, Coram Deo. And we learn four lessons from chapter 5 about how that might look in our lives as well. 
First, those who live before God should trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at this narrative. As David approaches Jerusalem, the Jebusites come out to him and taunt him. You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. So you can understand a little bit what's going on. This reminds me of a scene from Monty Python. When King Arthur comes to the castle occupied by Frenchmen, and their leader says to him, I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King, you and your silly English knigots. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelled of elderberry. That's what's going on here. Something like that. They're saying, you're so weak, our city is so strong that even if our army was only composed of those who are blind and lame, you couldn't take this fortress. David calls his men to attack and says, whoever strikes them strikes the blind and the lame who are hated by David. Now, I want to be very clear before we move on to the point of this passage. David is not saying that he hates those with physical handicaps. This is very clear. As the narrative moves on in this book, you will see that David brings into his house Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was lame. And he loved him and cared for him. What's going on here is that David is simply returning their taunt and saying, we'll see who's weak when this battle is all said and done. But what makes David so confident that he will be able to take this fortified city? It's been attempted before by Israel, and they haven't been able to take it. So why does David think that he'll be able to take it? I'm convinced it's because he has believed in the promises of God. A very specific promise that was given a thousand years earlier to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. This is what God said to Abraham, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Notice they're listed last. The others have been taken, not the Jebusites. Israel has tried, but they have yet to be successful. But now David has confidence that the Lord will fulfill his word. And that's exactly what the Lord does. After David takes the stronghold, he builds the city. Verse 10 says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's the narrator's perspective. But notice in verse 12, 
David knows it too. It says David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. For the sake of his people, Israel. And this leads us to the second lesson about living our lives quorum Deo. Those who live before God should do good to God's people. David's throne... So we've already seen David's throne is situated under God's throne. But his throne is meant to do good to the people who are under him. It's meant to be a blessing to the nation. And we'll see a hint of this in chapter 6 that this is exactly what David does. Chapter 6 verse 18, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Instead of taking from the people, there is finally a king over Israel who is giving to them. There is a lesson in this for us as well. We are not King David. But if you are to live your life before God, you must prioritize what God prioritizes. And God really loves His people. And He wants us to love them, to serve them, to bless them, and to do them good in tangible and in practical ways. There are two more lessons to learn from chapter 5 about living our lives quorum Deo. They come from the next scene in the chapter when the Philistines find out that David has been anointed as king over Israel. Remember, the Philistines just defeated Israel very handily. And now they learn that David's been anointed and all of Israel is united under him. That's what we learned last week. And so they say, we've got to deal with this before things get bad. And so they hunt down his life. It results in two battles between David and the Philistines. The first is introduced in verse 18. The Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. You see that exact same phrase in verse 22, which marks the second battle. But you also see a repetition of how David responds as the Philistines line up for battle. As they're breathing down his neck, what does he do? We are told two times, verse 19 and verse 23, that he inquired of the Lord. This teaches us our third lesson, that those who live their lives before God should ask for God's help. David asked for God's guidance. He not only asked for guidance, he also asked for assurance. And God gives him both. He tells him what to do. He tells him how to fight. He promises victory in the battle as well. And David heeds God's commands heeds his counsel, and he is victorious in both cases. But then the question is, how will David respond? So he's had a threat. He cries out to God. God answers his cry. What will he do next? And this is what we learn. Those who live before God should give God the credit. In verse 20, after the first battle is won, David says, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. 
So when the Lord goes before David to establish his kingdom, David gives credit to God for the victory. That's what living before God entails. So let me ask a question before we move on to the next chapter. When you face difficulties in life, what is your perspective? I think that's the important question here. How do you, to use this language we've been using of eyes, how do you see things? I know you guys are, you all have something right now. Some of it's big. Some of it's maybe simply inconvenient. But how do you look at it? Is it a difficulty that is insurmountable? A menacing difficulty? Is that how you see it? Or do you first lay your eyes on God and see His majesty, His power, His promises that He has made to His people, that He is able, that He is with you? If you see it that way with the eyes of your mind, it will be proven through your mouth, through your lips. It will drive you to your knees where you will pray to God if that's how you see it. And then when you see God at work, it will lead you to give Him thanks for what He has done in your life. David is by no means a perfect man. We see that in verses 13 to 16. He takes more wives, concubines at Jerusalem, completely disobeys God's command on this. Chapter 6, we'll see more. But there is something to be learned here about how we can live our lives before God, trusting in His promises, doing good to His people, asking Him for help, and then giving Him the credit. Really simple stuff. But it's this daily, simple stuff that shows us that God is the audience that we are living our lives before. Let's now look at chapter 6. Now that Jerusalem is taken, David's enemies defeated, now that God has established David's throne, it's time for David to bring God's throne to Jerusalem. Time for David's throne to be situated in the shadow of God's throne. There are two attempts to bring the ark to Jerusalem. The first one fails miserably. The second is a success. As we look at these two attempts, we're going to see four more lessons on how to live in the presence of God. Let's begin with the first attempt, which is found in the first 12 verses of chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, who was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, And Ahio went before the ark. 
and David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So this first attempt to bring the ark to, the Jerus to Jerusalem is a failure. But it teaches us indirectly our first lesson about how to live our lives in the presence of God when He is present among us, or at least our first lesson from chapter 6. It is this. We should obey God's voice. We should obey God's voice. Why do I say this? I'm going to give a little bit of context. Context from Samuel, context from the rest of the Bible to drive this point home. Recall back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Feels very similar to what we have here, only in reverse. You see, back there, the Philistines had defeated Israel, killing 30,000 of their men, and then hauling off the ark of God into the house of their god, Dagon. And at that time, the people of Israel said, the glory has departed from Israel. But God's presence in Philistia was disastrous. Their god Dagon kept falling down in his house. And the people of Philistia broke out in tumors. They didn't much like the presence of God and the ark of God among them. So they decided to send it back. And as they send it back, they put it on a cart carried by oxen. But as that cart makes its way to, uh, what is it called? Beth Shemesh. Someone looked in the ark and God struck down 70 men there. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked a question. Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. So they sent the ark to Kiriath-Jerim, to the house of Abinadab. And it has been there until then, until now, as David seeks to bring it to Jerusalem, to bring the glory back to Israel. Before, 30,000 men were killed. Now, 30,000 men accompany David. Before, 
They were killed by the Philistines. Now David has defeated the Philistines and leading a procession of people celebrating before the Lord. But then disaster strikes. The oxen stumble. Uzzah stretches out his hand to stabilize the ark. And he is struck down dead. The Lord had just broken out against the Philistines. David says, now you're breaking out against us. And David asks a question very similar to the question the people of Beth Shemesh asked. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Why has all of this happened? Almost everybody who reads this passage for the first time is troubled by it. I mean, wasn't their heart in the right place? Isn't it the thought that counts? That's what we say all of the time. When we think about the ways we do ministry, when we think about the ways that we worship, when we think about all kinds of things in our life. Isn't it the thought that counts? Yes, the thought counts. But it's not the only thing that counts. If we are going to live under God's ruling presence, we have to live under God's Word. And what's going on in this first attempt is in direct violation of God's Word, which had been laid out very clearly in the book of Numbers. The ark should be covered. We know it's not, otherwise Uzzah wouldn't be able to touch it. The ark is to be carried only by Levites on poles. They're not doing that. They're carrying it on a cart drawn by oxen like the Philistines, the Gentiles. That's how they were handling it. A man who lives before the Lord should know God's Word. Should seek out God's Word. Especially if he is a leader of God's people. And then lead and live according to that word. Uzzah and his family were not doing that. David, the leader who had commissioned this entire thing, he was not doing so either. And so God's presence among his people was disastrous for them like it was for the Philistines. We're like, oh, this is Old Testament stuff. Isn't that what Paul said happens at the Lord's Supper? When people do not come in a way that God has called them to come? Our God remains the same. If we are to approach Him, we can only approach Him in His way. So David sends the ark to the house of Obed-Edom, and Obed-Edom's house is blessed (laughs) because of the ark of the Lord. This is so gracious on God's part. It's this sign of, this is the way it's supposed to be. When I am present among you, the people of God are to be blessed. So the question before us is who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? 
How can the ark of the Lord, how can the presence of the Lord come among us in such a way that we are blessed, not struck down? And the answer to that question comes in the second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 16, I mean 12 to 19. So David hears of the blessing at the house of Obed-Edom, and we read, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house, and David returned to bless his household. The second attempt is very similar to the first attempt. But there's a couple of critical differences beyond the obvious difference that it was successful this time. The first difference is the people are now bearing the ark, we are told. They're carrying it on poles like they were supposed to do. So they're obeying God. But there is something more and something that is more important. Notice this time that after they take six steps, they sacrifice an ox and a fattened animal. They're making offering for their sins. This is a critical detail, friends. We're talking about how to live our lives before the presence of God. Fundamentally, There is one thing that is required if we are to live our lives before the presence of God, and it is this, we must receive God's grace. God wants to dwell among His people. He wants to bless them. He wants a relationship with them. But here's the thing, the only way to live in the presence of a holy God is to have your sins atoned for. And so God in the entire system that surrounds the Ark of the Covenant established a lot of blood, a lot of sacrifice, so that through the death of a substitute, the people of God could come into the presence of God and not experience His disastrous presence, but instead His presence of blessing. So David now sets the ark in Jerusalem and we are told that this sacrificial system 
get started there. Verse 17, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. For us, nothing's changed on the one hand and everything has changed on the other. In order to come into God's presence, we still need God's grace. We still need the blood of a substitute. But it's no longer David offering animals on behalf of the people. It's David's greater son, Jesus, who offers His own life for us once for all. But there's more to it than that. Can I tell you a little bit more of the story? You see... The glory of the Lord had departed from Israel and David was bringing it back. He's establishing Jerusalem, but did you know it didn't last? David's sons eventually start disobeying God and so God's disaster breaks out against them again. In 586, the Babylonians come in to Jerusalem. They decimate the place. The throne of David is decimated. The temple which housed the Ark of the Covenant of the presence of God, it is desecrated. And as Ezekiel describes this event, it's interesting that he describes it as the glory of God departing from Israel in Ezekiel 10. The glory gets up from the Ark of the Covenant. It goes out of the Holy of Holies. It continues out of the holy place into the court of the temple. And guess where it goes? Out to the east over the Mount of Olives. Gone. It didn't return 70 years later. It returned 400 years later. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory. And that glory was arrested where? On the Mount of Olives. Came back into Jerusalem. He was tried as a criminal though He had committed no sin. He was lifted up, exalted, glorified on a cross. His body, the temple, was torn down, but God raised it up on the third day. We now come to Him to be restored to a right relationship with God. He has offered the sacrifice that makes it possible for us to come back into the presence of God in such a way that we are blessed and not obliterated. Praise God! Friends, this is the only way. God's presence among you will either be disastrous or it will be a blessing The only way it will be a blessing is if you receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm praying that you will cling to Him by faith. How should we respond if we do? 
That leads us to the third way to live our lives before God. We should show great gladness. This is something we need to learn, friends. This is one of those things like grief. We talked about a couple of weeks. We don't get it. I don't think we get gladness either. Did you notice the language used in this chapter? Look at verse 5. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Verse 12. David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Verse 14. David danced before the Lord with all his might. Verse 15. David brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Here's your homework. Go home and read 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, which retells this same story. And what you'll see in 1 Chronicles 16 is David wrote a song for this occasion for everybody to sing. That song became so important in the life of Israel that it is recorded in three of our Psalms. One of them I referred to earlier in my prayers from Psalm 96, which stands at the center, the pinnacle of an entire collection of Psalms that is all about Yahweh Melech. The Lord reigns. The Lord is King. And flanked on either side of this are two Psalms you know well, Psalm 92 and Psalm 100, which are all about singing praise to God. Psalm 100, verse 1, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Yahweh is King. Serve Him with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Here's the point. When the Lord is on His throne, ruling in the presence of His people, blessing His people, being gracious to His people, the only right response is to sing praise to God with great gladness. That's what David does. That's what he leads the people to do. And that's what we should do as well. Every Sunday. Every day. In your car. In the shower that we would overflow with gladness because of the great grace of our great God. But there's one person in the crowd who's not singing. She's not dancing at the party. It's David's wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, we're told three times. Instead of delighting in the Lord, she's despising David. Why does she despise him? In verse 20, we get it. 
we see why she's despising him. She speaks to David with dripping sarcasm. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Notice three times she talks about uncovering. But she starts by saying how the king has honored himself. That word in the Hebrew is kavod. It's the same word for glory. You see, in all of the festivities, David had removed his kingly garments. It's not like he stripped down all the way to his skivvies. He's removed his kingly garments. He's removed the vestiges of his glory as the king stripped himself of the royal robes to show proper glory to Yahweh, who is king, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Michael doesn't like this. How could the king let people see him like this? Don't you know people are watching you? What will they think of you? This is so unbecoming of a king. And she's right. It's unbecoming of a king like her father. It's unbecoming of a king like the nations. But it is the exact right posture of a king after God's own heart. And this leads to the final way that we are to live before God. We should seek God's glory above our own. David's rejoicing without his robes before the Lord. Verse 21. He's celebrating before the Lord. Whose eyes does David care about? Sure, He's dishonored himself in human terms, but David knows something that all of us need to come to know. He knows something that Hannah told us about at the very beginning of Samuel. Those who humble themselves before God, God will exalt. He will lift up. And God has honored this humble king. He has exalted him. He has chosen him above Saul. And this humble act will not result in the people looking down on David. No, verse 22 tells us he will be held in honor by them. This is the exact trajectory of King Jesus. The one to whom David points. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Although anointed as king with all authority, he became obedient to his father. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But God has highly exalted him. Now, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The heavens and on the earth and under the earth. That Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus sought the glory of his Father above his own. But guess what? The Lord exalted him. 
Let me ask the questions I began with this morning in closing. What do you do when nobody is watching? David prayed. He believed God's promises. Isn't that the exact thing that Jesus did? And what do you do when everybody is watching? David humbled himself and submitted his throne to God's throne. He surrendered his glory in the eyes of others to the glory of God, as did Jesus. For David, and I'm praying for you, I'm praying for me, that the eyes of God would weigh much more heavy in our minds than the eyes of man. David pointed to Jesus, the kind of king we should look to, And friends, when we look to Him, I want you to hear this. We will be blessed. If we despise Him, we will be cursed. That's what happened to Michael. While everybody else is receiving blessings from God at the hand of David, the story concludes by telling us that Michael had no children to the day of her death. But the point of emphasis for us is that those who look to God and those who then live their lives quorum Deo before the face of God, they will receive the blessing of God. Did you know that when the pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem, they would have received from the priest the Aaronic blessing? May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May He turn His face towards you in favor and give you peace. If that was true for Israel, how much more will it be true for those of us who have come, as the author of Hebrews says, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant. Friends, through the grace of God, we can come into God's presence and receive His rich blessing. Let us therefore live our lives always before this blessing presence of God. Let us pray. Father, open our eyes to see that it is Your eyes that matter above all. Help us to look to Jesus, Your Son, knowing that through Him You look upon us in favor. May that grace motivate us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.